Gospel Lessons from a Nazareth Synagogue Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Fourth Sunday of Epiphany, January 30th, 2022, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Luke's account of Jesus' sermon in Nazareth is rich in detail of Jewish religious life in the first century. It also defines the mission of Jesus and, even further, the very nature of the Father who sent him. The strong reaction of the townsfolk, says Reverend David Pelegi, is instructive for us in addressing our own current issues. This sermon is dedicated to the memory of Dwight A. Pryor. The first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. And it's the call of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, Sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. These are the words of the Lord. The next reading is from the book of Corinthians beginning to read at verse 12, at chapter 12, verse 31. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. 
Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let us now stand for the reading of the gospel. The reading is from Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. We continue the story of Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to overthrow him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, let's pray. Father in heaven, we um, turn to you and we ask that uh, you will speak to us through your word. And we pray that um, you will give us the grace to pay attention and even more so, Lord, the grace to obey what you say to us so that we may deepen our commitment to you and reflect truly who you are in this world. Again, Lord, we pray that uh, we will be that community that shows your face to the world. Amen. 
we started last week with this passage, the people who make the lectionary or who design the lectionary, I don't know who they are, but uh, the lectionary readings for the most part are quite old. Um, And the way that the lectionary has been divided up into a three-year period surely goes back to um, a Jewish tradition in the Second Temple period. And um, last week we uh, spoke a bit about the, you might say, the beginning of the story or the the Jesus going to Nazareth, sitting down, beginning to teach. And I'd like just to say a few words to remind us what we did say last week, because it's especially important, not only for most of us, who are notorious for forgetting what was preached 15 minutes after the sermon, But, you know, when you get to my age, it's even worse. So um, before we begin, there is a um, there's someone I'd like to um, give honor to. And uh, this person um, died. This person was my teacher and mentor. His name was Dwight Pryor. And uh, I learned. a lot from Dwight over the years, and uh, his personal example and, and the personal advice he gave me uh, over the years uh, was, um, I think, very, very formative. And therefore, um, he died about this time of the year, 2011, and um, his loss um, is still something that uh, affects me very deeply. And I think it's not a week that goes by, perhaps for selfish reasons, that I say, uh, Dwight, you left us too soon. Those of you who are not familiar with Dwight can Google him and and the um, body of work that he did can be found at the Center for Judaic Christian Studies in Dayton. And I highly recommend... um, most everything he has to teach. So Luke chapter 4, I think if I remember correctly, Dwight quite loved that passage, and I think it's one of my favorite passages as well in the entire gospel because it does something uh, very important for us. And this we mentioned last week, uh, and that is that it shows us, I think in a way, that uh, should jolt us or shock us, you know, it uh, tells us something or reveals something to us uh, that perhaps uh, we don't easily connect with. And that is, it gives us a fuller, rounder picture of what is the gospel. Now, the term the gospel has become very uh, much a cliche, especially in Protestant circles in recent years, people talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And very often what people mean when they talk about the gospel, have you heard the gospel? Um, Do you know the gospel? They mean, have you been saved? Or have you made Jesus your personal savior? Or better, have you made Jesus Lord and savior? 
or they, we often use it to talk about justification by faith, not of works, you know, something about God's grace. And I'd like to just affirm that I think all of those things are wonderful and true. Yes, that we are justified by faith and that uh, each one of us should have an encounter, you know, uh, with the living Jesus. So I have to repeat that. Yes, I think those things, I affirm those things and think they're wonderful. But they're only a part of the gospel. They're not the entire gospel. And last week, I read a few passages, uh, especially from the epistles, in which Paul talks about the gospel of God. Yes, that ultimately, uh, I've come to the conclusion that when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about this announcement of this good news, what it is, it, 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 in, in, the most, it, in the sharpest form, is a revelation of who God himself is. It is a revelation of his character, yes, of his, his personality. We see it in the Hebrew Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. We have it sharpened for us, yes, in the, in the face of Jesus, his son. And you might say that Jesus, in the face of Jesus, we see the glory of God. But glory is a very ambiguous term. Yeah, glory, people can't, what is glory? You know, people aren't sure. But glory is nothing more than holiness made concrete or holiness uh, becoming uh, in some way incarnate. Yes, when we see um, something of God's character, something that perhaps that we can touch or or see or smell, this is glory. It's not necessarily used, you know, the way we use it sometimes in Pentecostal circles. And what happens in the synagogue in Nazareth is really a um, revelation, perhaps deeper revelation, uh, more intimate revelation, yes, of God's holiness. Yes, what do you mean, God's holiness? Jesus sitting down in a synagogue? Holiness is not only otherness. It's, it's not only God is... Uh, you know, something completely and radically different from his creation. It certainly is that. But holiness is also about power, the power of God. And in this case, it's the power of God to save. And who is God going to save? He's going to save those who are disenfranchised, those who are oppressed, those who find themselves um, um, blinded, um, either physically or otherwise, in one way or the other. And some people might be saying, well, I don't know if I can relate to that, because I, after all, I'm not poor, and I can see, and I have a driver's license, and I have a big pension coming when I retire. But I think that applies to everyone in the, in the human family, yes, who can admit, you know, uh, a certain lack or admit a certain poverty, you might say, within, within ourselves, 
or within oneself. And secondly, holiness is not only about God's power, but it's about God's goodness. What makes the God of Israel holy and not just powerful is that he's good. Yes, sometimes we can dispute and, and, and argue that within the context of, you know, why is there evil in this world? But over and over again, yes, we, throughout the scripture, and maybe even in our own lives, we can testify to God's goodness. And there are many gods in this, and there were many gods in the ancient world. They're probably still with us spiritually. Uh, there are many gods in the modern world. Yes, many of these gods uh, are powerful, some much less so. But the question is, are they good? Do they have our best or do they want our best? And so Jesus begins his ministry full of the Spirit, as we said last week. He comes to his hometown, Nazareth. He sits down, um, and I don't go through all the customs, you know, of uh, first century synagogue life or what we can learn from this passage about synagogue life, other other than it is worth noting that Luke chapter 4, in the way that Jesus quotes the scripture, Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, is a very, is very, very strong evidence uh, for a Jesus who spoke Hebrew and, know, and knew Hebrew quite well. And so Jesus makes this announcement, this very radical announcement about this powerful God, yes, who's uh, now at work through him, who's bringing a year of jubilee, who's bringing redemption, yes, who's bringing good news to the poor and freedom for those who are oppressed and eyesight uh, to the blind. Yes, all again, all of this is couched within the story of Israel, as we said last week. It's to be understood, yes, in these, this year of jubilee, this year of freedom, this year of release. And Jesus here is playing the role of a kinsman redeemer, a goel, somebody in the family that comes and gets justice or brings justice for those family members who are being oppressed, have been oppressed, or have just fallen on hard times. But as we said last week, and we'll pick up with this in a minute, as we said last week, there's a catch to all this, or there's a condition to all this. And that condition is that the year of Jubilee, the concept of redemption, is always tied to one thing. And that is, see if you did your homework, see if you remember. If you can't remember, um, Neville will be handing out pills at the end of the service to help with your memory. Uh, The first 30 are free, and then afterwards you have to pay. 
Pardon? The Redeemer, what? Kinsman Redeemer. Yeah, but when, do, when does the year of Jubilee start? It starts the 50th year. But on what day? Day of Atonement. It starts with the Day of Atonement goes down and the blowing of the shofar, as long as it doesn't fall on Shabbat. So what's the Day of Atonement? Repentance, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Is, this idea is picked up by the prophets. And the prophets, for example, tell us, I'll just, we'll just read one, but there are many. Yes, from Isaiah 59, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. 59.20. So you have a concept Yes, that grows uh, in the latter part of the Bible and well in the Second Temple period Judaism. Yes, that redemption is connected to some kind of repentance. And those of you who know rabbinic literature, this concept continues to grow. You have sayings like by Rabbi Jonathan, yeah, you know, great is repentance for it brings the redemption nearer. And Rabbi Yossi, the Galilean, says the same kind of thing. And of course, it's inherent, is it not, in the message of Jesus? Yes, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the introduction. Now we come back to it in a moment. Now, the rest of the, for the rest of the story. Well, things are going swimmingly. Yes, Jesus is read from Isaiah. He's been a little creative. He's taken Isaiah 61 and spliced it with Isaiah 58. Yes, he's allowed to do such a thing uh, because there are some words there in common. And then he sits down. And uh, the way that we traditionally read the text, I believe, is wrong. We read the text like this, or we understand the text like this. It says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, meaning he's going to teach. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. In Greek... Yes, this verse can be translated as such, but it also can be translated uh, as the exact opposite meaning, meaning that all were either offended by him or all were scandalized by him, which makes sense because they say, isn't this Joseph's son? And of course, we um, read the text it's not wrong, I don't think, uh, in a way that says, yes, here's this, here's this kid from uh, Nazareth, somebody who's you know, part of our community. We knew him when he's young. And look, he has the audacity to say that really, in effect, he's bringing this messianic jubilee. Who does he think he is? 
That's one good possibility. But you see, Jesus is already known as a miracle worker. He had some kind of either healing ministry or had some kind of reputation before this. So maybe that's not the best reading. Maybe instead, the reading, um, which we'll, we will give evidence for later, is that when he quotes Isaiah 61, he quotes only partially what a kinsman redeemer does. A kinsman redeemer comes and saves those members of the family who are in trouble in one way or another. Yes, who brings them justice, brings them freedom, brings them redemption, brings them back to the place where God really intended. Right? But he leaves off an important function of a kinsman redeemer, which is to bring vengeance, yes, or to bring vindication, yes, because he doesn't quote Isaiah 61 verse 2 fully, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the verse goes on in Isaiah to say, and the vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves that off. Now here you are, you're in Nazareth, And I want to just point out that this is not a problem of Nazareth, and this is not a problem of first century Judea. This is like a very intrinsic human problem. You're suffering, you're oppressed, you're living under the mighty, you know, boot of Rome. Rome is preventing you from really fulfilling God's will and God's purposes. Greco-Roman civilization has somehow filled your land with idolatry and immorality. Yes, things are confusing. Where's God's redemption? Why isn't God fair? Why isn't God bringing judgment on our enemies? You could say, oh, that's very coarse and crude. Not necessarily. I think all human beings have a, demand, have a, a desire for justice, have some kind of desire to see that the good are rewarded and bad guys are punished. That's most of our Hollywood movies, yes, based on some, based on some kind of uh, you know, reward and punishment. It's something, again, very human, very basic. Maybe it's... Part of the fact that we're made in the image of God. Even fallen humanity has retained that much. So, why aren't the bad guys, you know, you know, getting their reward? Or to put it in more modern terms, why are bad things happening to good people? And why are all the bad people, you know, uh, succeeding with empire and conquest and more? By the way, if you want to get a very uh, uh, good Jewish view of this, all you need to do is read Revelation 18. When it talks about uh, the great uh, whore of Babylon, yes, and the way it... um, 
It's drunk on the blood of the righteous, and it has enslaved millions of people and made itself prosperous, yes, on blood and slavery. It's not perhaps the only Jewish view, but there was one Jewish view. Where is the vengeance? And then they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of, isn't this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, isn't this the son of, of uh, Joseph? As if, come on, kid, you are raised here. You know what we believe. We educated you. You know, you know, you know the values of this place. You know the, um, you know, our attitude towards outsiders uh, and foreigners. Come on, get with the program. Get with the program. And then Jesus, of course, goes on to mention Elijah and Elisha. Now, why Elijah and Elisha? I don't know if you, unless you come from JUC. Yeah? I want you guys to get, you know, uh, value for your education. Elijah and Elisha, they're kind of like local heroes, aren't they? Their ministry is in the north, not north of Nazareth, south of Nazareth. Yeah. Secondly, Elijah and Elisha, the only two prophets distinctly, yes, anointed by the Spirit. Yes, they're anointed by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus said. And have you ever noticed that the model, that the, you might say that the ministry of Jesus is modeled to some extent on Elijah and Elisha? Yes, healings, miracles with lepers, raising the dead, miracles relating to, connected to animals, uh, both a message of repentance, but also, yes, being rejected. And I think what Jesus is saying is that if you want to be a prophet, it's not, your, it's not going to be very popular. The prophets pay a price. They don't take polls and find out what the latest public opinion is. They're usually ones who stand somewhat outside. Yes, who stand somewhat outside, who have God's authority, and they're able to critique, yes, what's wrong and what the solution might be. Now, in so many cases, you know, it's a passage like this, that uh, allows people or gives them the permission, they think, to paint Jesus as some kind of religious rebel. Sort of like an Elvis Presley. Apparently, they asked Elvis, Elvis, what are you rebelling against? And Elvis, you know, with a mean look in his eye, said, what do you got? 
This was before he went off to the U.S. Army and got domesticated by his, his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Yes, and some people see Jesus in that way, you know, as a rebel uh, who rebelled against everything Jewish and against the religious establishment and against the rules and regulations. He did not. On February the 2nd, we celebrate, yes, the Christian world, most of the Christian world, we celebrate the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Yes, 40 days after the 25th December. And if you've ever studied Luke chapter 2, you can see how godly and how Torah observant his parents were. And how they raised Jesus in an atmosphere to have a love for Torah and a commitment to obey God and the Torah at any price. And, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, we see his, uh, we see this continual, you might say, Torah, Torah observance. And I think because our society somehow loves rebels, but uh, we deify rebels, we somehow um, admire them for being rebellious and fighting against the system, you know, so they uh, sometimes so they, they can be themselves. But I don't think that's really very helpful. Jesus, in his, this case, was someone who was Torah observant. He did fit in. He fit in well to the, to, in one way to society in Nazareth because we know it was a very pious town. What he rejected was their xenophobia, yes, and their lack of extending God's mercy to Gentiles. But he could, because Jesus could see a better way, yes, and offer that critique Yes, it's done out of love. Like a prophet, he has authority, but it's not used in a self-righteous way. Yes, in the next chapter, it tells us that Jesus goes down to Capernaum and he begins to teach with authority. Yes, but he does it, right, out of humility and he does it out of love. That's why we read the second passage the passage from the epistles, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, that becomes the motivation of Jesus. Yes, he fits in, but yet he doesn't fit in. And he wants to call people to a better way. And in the process, he avoids, and I think if we follow his example, a certain self-righteousness. So last week I had to give a lecture, you know, uh, about um, how to live out the gospel in this country. And one of the things I, it always, it strikes me and I always have to remind myself, and I try to remind others, is that when we come to this country, especially as outsiders, we dare not come and be self-righteous. We dare not come and point, you know, point out the sins of one side or the other you know, without first you know, examining ourselves. You know, that this country isn't a moral health resort. 
And even if we do have a critique of one side or another, hopefully it's done in love. Yes, hopefully it's done in love. And so Jesus talks about Elijah and Elisha. Yes, they're both going to the Gentiles. And of course, people are even more infuriated. And they want to throw him off the side of a hill. Because believe it or not, in the Second Temple period, it was actually thought uh, this was a more humane way to be stoned. Okay, meaning they'll knock you unconscious and then you'll be stoned. And of course, Jesus having that authority, and we're not quite sure why or how, but he simply walks, he simply walks through the crowd. Yes. So there are two other aspects that I think that are hopefully connected to this. Um, One, that is having the Holy Spirit and having this uh, ministry that Jesus has can sometimes deceive us because I'm very grateful to Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement and how it is revived uh, much of the church. And even those of us who don't agree with it or, or disagree with it, or you know, we're, we're influenced by it. And I think on the whole, it's been positive. But so often when we talk about the spirit, it's done in, uh, in a way that we're talking about God's blessing or we're talking about um, you know, something, you know, triumphal. You know, we're talking about miracles. And we have lots of books which and videos and YouTube testimonies of marvelous things that the Holy Spirit has done. And again, so there's no misunderstanding. Let me affirm this. And I'm sure you, like me, can all give testimony to some of these miraculous, wonderful things that have been done in our life. Yes, by God. And we should continue to expect those things. But one thing that's worth considering in all this is that the whole, when the Holy Spirit comes, yes, whether it's on Jesus or comes on us, and we see testimony to this in the book of Acts, there's a paradox. It brings blessing. Yes, it brings healing to people. It sets people free from the demonic or the idols, yes, that we worship. Um, It uh, brings, you might say, spiritual insight, deliverance from the devil, and it also brings misunderstanding. I'm not just talking about the controversy of the Holy Spirit in the church. It brings rejection and it brings suffering. All of those things go with the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Whether it's in the life of Jesus, the early Jesus in Luke's gospel, he'll send out the 12 and send out the 72. Yes. And he says, go out and heal. Go out and deliver from demons. Demons. 
But when people don't accept you, and you surely will be rejected, then wipe the dust off your feet. And the continuation of Luke's gospel is found in the book of Acts. And everyone says, let's go back to the book of Acts and let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you say such a thing, wonderful, but you're also inviting trouble. And the point is, are we ready for it? Are we prepared, are we courageous enough, especially in our day and age of social media, for people to say not such nice things about us on Facebook because we speak in a prophetic way? Or are we prepared for rejection? Or are we prepared for suffering? And are we reminded that God uses these things for his own purposes, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the, of the community? By the way, this, under, this goes back to the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus when you see the, the posters in front of you. When Simeon and Anna meet Jesus, and Simeon says to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken, and, and, sorry, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says to the mother, a sword will pierce your soul, your, your own soul too. Yes. Um, so we know from the beginning that there's going to be reject, people will accept and people will reject. And see the people of Nazareth, you know, this is, by the way, one Jewish point of view, not every Jewish point of view in the Second Temple period, the people of Nazareth, yes, um, wanted a Messiah, perhaps, you know, that they didn't need. And that's so often the case, yes? The, the redemption we want, the deliverance we want, the healing we want, yes, is not always what we need. And they rejected the message of Jesus. They rejected the message of Jesus because he wanted to include the Gentiles as he understood the scriptures, the prophets, and the Psalms included Gentiles in God's redemption. By the way, let's not make the mistake or the fallacy that Jesus turned to the Gentiles somehow because he was rejected in Nazareth. That certainly wasn't the case. And what happens in Nazareth is that basically Jesus uh, tells his townspeople, stop being self, don't be self-righteous, and don't deny God's mercy to the wicked or to sinners. I can't make the argument for it now, but basically Jesus would have understood all of us. Yes, our need of God's mercy and God's self-right, God's, um, God's care and God's healing. And finally, you might take from all this, 
Okay. So the message is really simple, isn't it? The message is we need to be careful about saying who's in and who's out, for sure. Yeah. These people are not in. These people are out. Right? We need to be careful about God's mercy and judgment to those who are sinners. And by the way, it's not that Jesus is somehow rejects judgment and a final accounting of our sins. He does. It's just that he understands that it's not now. It is something that will happen later. Or we could say, oh, we could be so 21st century. And we could say, oh, the message is about inclusivity. The message is about welcoming, welcoming all. Um, not rejecting anyone. Yes, and it's true. The gospel message, the gospel, the message, you might say, that Jesus portrays, I mean, uh, pre, uh, that Jesus reveals, indeed is, the, is, as I said, God himself. And can I remind you that God himself is indeed very inclusive. That God himself is very welcoming. So yes, he's so 21st century. But at the same time, God does call everyone to repentance. God calls us all to transformation. There's healing. There's freedom from oppression. There's restoration, redemption. There's a year of jubilee. But that year of jubilee is turns ultimately on not staying the way we are. Yes, but changing. You know, in the book of Leviticus, the message is, be holy for I am holy. The way that translates in the life of Jesus, as we see in the next chapter, Jesus with all that authority, the authority of a Jeremiah, the authority of an Elijah, the authority of an Elisha, anointed by the Spirit, acting in love and humility, says to the folks down at Capernaum, and still says to us today, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Live the way I live. Yes, model your life after me. Walk after me. Imitate me. This is the message. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we ask that uh, you will take this incident in the Nazareth synagogue and help us to apply it to our lives daily so that we come to a deeper understanding of who you are. Yes, that we can see your glory and your holiness in the face of your son, Jesus. And again, Lord, we can model our lives in our communities. Yes, 
on what you teach us in this passage. Again, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.